A Christian is not just a person who believes in God or who has decided to join a church or who has decided to clean up his act, become a little more moral than he used to be. What makes a Christian a Christian is that he has been born again. He has come out of spiritual death into spiritual life. What makes a person a Christian is that he has been given a new nature. He is a new creation so that he is altogether different from what he was before. In fact, the change that takes place at salvation is actually greater than the change that will take place at death. Because the new nature has already been created. The new you is already made. You are already fitted for heaven. And that's why Paul said in Philippians 3.20 that we are already citizens there. All death does is freeze up that new nature from your body to go into the presence of the Lord. And so the biggest change has already happened. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And so salvation is not just an improvement on what you were. It's not just a restoration of our old selves. It is a total transformation. We are altogether new. And because we are different people, Paul tells us, beginning in chapter 4 and verse 17, that we should walk different. This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. Our walk is to be different from the world around us and different from the way we used to walk. And in case you need a reason for that, Paul gives us three at the outset of this verse. The first one is in that word, therefore. He's basing this exhortation on what he said before. And I think primarily he's going back to the first three chapters. He's pigtailing the therefore we saw in verse 1 of chapter 4. There he said, therefore walk worthy. Now he says, therefore walk differently. And he's looking back to all those things he told us in the first three chapters. Because you have been redeemed and forgiven and adopted as children and blessed with all spiritual blessings, because you are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus, therefore walk differently. And I think as well, he's looking back to the first 14 or 16 verses of chapter 4. And he's saying, because you're members of the body of Christ and are growing into unity and maturity in the likeness of him, therefore walk differently. That's the first reason. The second reason is seen in the next phrase, which says, and I affirm together with the Lord. Paul is not just expressing his preference or his idea. He's not saying, if it was up to me, I would tell you to walk differently. He's saying, I am saying this with the Lord. This is with authority. These are the words of the Lord as I give this exhortation to you. That's reason number two. And then the third reason is found in the next phrase where it says that you walk no longer. That's a time reference. And the time element is very important in the book of Ephesians. And just to remind you of that, let me have you turn back a page to chapter 2 and verse 12 where Paul says, remember that you were, at that time, separate from Christ, excluded from Israel, strangers without hope, without God in the world, verse 13, but now, in Christ Jesus, you've been brought near. You were, but now. That's a time element. And between those two, what you were and what you are now, something very revolutionary has taken place. You were changed from a sinner to a saint. 
That's who this letter is addressed to in chapter 1, verse 1. To the saints. And if you are a Christian, you're a saint. So Paul says, because that's who you are, start walking like who you are and stop walking like who you used to be. I like the way Peter put it in 1 Peter 4, 3. He said, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. You've put in your time walking that way. It's over now and you need to move on to a new walk. We're no longer to walk that way. And in case you've forgotten what your walk used to be like, Paul explains it to us in verses 17 to 19. And in doing so, he gives us a portrait of the Christless life. We can note three things about it. Number one, the condition. Number two, the cause. And number three, the consequence. This is what your life used to be like, and this is what the life of the world is like. First of all, he tells us the condition at the end of verse 17 and into verse 18. Notice the last phrase in verse 17. That you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Now, it's noteworthy that when Paul wants to talk about lifestyles, he starts by talking about the mind. And throughout this passage, we see that as a theme. If you look at verse 18, he says, They are darkened in their understanding. He talks about the ignorance that is in them. In verse 20, he says, But you did not learn Christ this way. Verse 21, You have been taught in Him. Truth is in Jesus. Verse 23 And you have been renewed in the spirit of your mind. Last word in verse 24 is truth. What does that tell us? That tells us that what you do is dictated by what you think. Actions begin as thoughts. And because unbelievers and believers think differently, therefore they act differently. And the first thing that Paul tells us about the unbeliever's condition is that they walk in the futility of their mind. Now that word futility literally means that which doesn't lead to the goal. And so it came to mean aimless, pointless, lacking direction, empty. That is what life is like for the unbeliever. And that is what your life was like apart from Christ. It was purposeless. It was aimless. The classic example in Scripture is Solomon. He had wealth. The Bible tells us that he made silver and gold as common as stones in Jerusalem. He had women, 700 wives and 300 concubines. And he had pleasure. In Ecclesiastes 2.10, he made this statement, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. He never said no to himself. So he did whatever he desired to do, and he had all the resources in the world to do them. If they could put him in a commercial today, they would say, it doesn't get any better than this. But when Solomon evaluated his life, this is what he said in Ecclesiastes 2.11. When I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Futility of futilities, all is futility. And that's a word that Solomon uses 39 times in Ecclesiastes. You know, I look on the television today and I see these infomercials 
on seminars where you can learn to believe in yourself and think positive and achieve your dreams and hitch your wagon to a star. But listen, there is no star. Unless you hitch your wagon to Jesus Christ, you are going nowhere. And I don't care how positively you think about it, there's no goal. And so Paul is saying that life for the unbeliever is zero. It's empty. It's aimless because there is no purpose. Most people follow the philosophy of Edna St. Vincent Millay who said, life must go on, but I forget why. Isn't that true? People are racing through life as if they have purpose and there is none. It's expressed in the song of Jackson Brown, The Pretender. He says, if you're there, say a prayer for the pretender who started out so young and strong only to surrender. Started out young and strong looking for ideals and purpose and meaning and he said, I surrendered. What did he surrender to? He surrendered to the very thing that most people surrender to and that is materialism. He says, I'm going to struggle for the legal tender where the ads take aim and lay their claim to the heart and the soul of the spender. And I'm going to believe in whatever may lie in those things that money can buy. That's where most people find their purpose, in possessions. And then he closes that song with this sad prayer. He says, I'm going to rent myself a house in the shade of the freeway. I'm going to pack my lunch in the morning and go to work each day. And when the evening rolls around, I'll go on home and lay my body down. And when the morning light comes streaming in, I'll get up and do it again. Amen. That's life for most people. It's a constant, repetitious cycle going nowhere. When you ask the average person what's the meaning of life, he'll say, I don't know but I'm getting 25 miles to the gallon on the highway. What's the meaning of life? Beats me, but I'm a two-handicap in golf. I don't know what the meaning of life is, but I'm leading my company in sales this month. You see, the sum total of all that goes on in the mind of an unbeliever from an eternal perspective is trivial pursuit. Because the things that he holds valuable are futile. Because the things that he holds valuable are the things of this world. And John said in 1 John 2, 17, the world is passing away. And so he's heading in a direction where there is no goal. I came across an interview with Donald Trump back in 1989 when his bank account was still bulging. And a writer asked him the inevitable question about what horizons were left to conquer. And here was his response. Right now, I'm genuinely enjoying myself. I work and I don't worry. And the writer said, well, what about death? Don't you worry about dying? And Trump said, no, I'm fatalistic and I protect myself as well as anybody can. I prepare for things. And then he started to walk up the stairs with his family to eat, and it's as if he paused to realize that that had been sort of a stock answer. And so he came back to the question, aren't you afraid of dying? And he said, no, I don't believe in reincarnation, and I don't believe in hell or heaven, but we do go someplace. And then he paused again, 
And he said, do you know, I cannot for the life of me figure out where. That's pretty sad, isn't it? It's tragic. Racing through life, making half-billion-dollar deals, and you don't have a clue where you're going. They walk in the futility of their mind. Second thing Paul says, it's the first of verse 18, being darkened in their understanding. Now, when Paul talks about darkened understanding here, he's not talking about mental IQ. He's talking about spiritual IQ. Their understanding of the truth of God is darkened. Speaking to newspaper executives in Atlanta, Ted Turner told them that the Ten Commandments were out of date, kaput, expired. He said they need updating. When Moses went up on the mountain, there were no nuclear weapons, there was no problem with the ozone layer or are these problems. So Turner proposed replacing the Ten Commandments with his own version, which he calls the Ten Voluntary Initiatives. And the first two voluntary initiatives are, I love and respect planet Earth and all living things thereon, especially my fellow species, mankind. And two, I promise to treat all persons everywhere with dignity, respect, and friendliness. Now somehow, that doesn't have the ring of authority that the Ten Commandments have, does it? And listen to the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You say, well, what would cause an individual to be so arrogant to think that he can rewrite the Word of God? Well, Paul tells us here, he's darkened in his understanding. And the Bible also tells us the source of that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, it says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And then Paul gives us a third expression of the condition of the lost world. In the second phrase in verse 18, he says they are excluded from the life of God. This is the same thing he said back in chapter 2 and verse 1. He said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Unbelievers are spiritually dead. They are separated from the life of God. And that really ties in with what Paul is talking about here when he talks about the mind and the understanding because Jesus defined life in John 17 as knowing God. And so to be spiritually dead is to be separated from God, to have no capacity to know Him or to relate to Him. A few weeks ago when my dad had his heart attack and they took him in for the angioplasty, he was awake during the process. And at some time during the procedure, his heart stopped. And so they had to come in with those shocker deals and shock him. Uh, That's the technical term, if you didn't know. (laughs) And so technically, for about 10 or 15 seconds, he was dead. Now, When they shocked him back, his first words were, I must have taken a little nap. And they said, no, you were dead. Now, while he was dead, he wasn't really in on the conversation. I mean, it wouldn't have helped the doctor to talk louder to him because he had no capacity to hear or respond. 
And you see, that's what it is to be spiritually dead. It's to be incapable of responding to God. We can't hear Him. We can't respond to Him. We can't communicate with Him. And so there is the condition of the world apart from Christ. Paul says they have no purpose, they have no light, and they have no life. And then he moves to the cause at the end of verse 18. Notice what he says. Because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And if you'll notice, Paul uses that phrase, because of, twice. He's giving the reason. He's giving us the cause, and it's twofold. The first reason is ignorance. Now, the average person today is more educated than anyone else in history. We've got college graduates by the tens of millions. And we've got the information superhighway that has the answers right at our fingertips. And for most people today, the greatest insult you could give them would be to call them ignorant. People would rather be called sinful than ignorant in our day. And yet Paul says the real root problem of all this lack of understanding and all this futility is ignorance. You say, well, what are they ignorant of? Well, two obvious things they're ignorant of. Number one, they don't know God. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 5, Paul tells us not to live in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. It doesn't matter how educated I am in the fields of this world. If I say there's no God or if I live like there's no God, I am ignorant. And David said that long ago in Psalm 14. He said, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so the first thing they don't know is they don't know God. The second thing they don't know is that they don't know God's plan. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're told that the gospel is designed in God's wisdom. And as the Gentiles look at the gospel, they call it foolishness. Now, I don't care how many degrees I've got after my name. If I look at the wisdom of God and call it foolishness, what's that make me? Ignorant. You didn't have to say that. Ted Turner made these remarks in front of a group of broadcasters in Dallas. He said, Christianity is a religion for losers. Of course, in some way, I would agree with that because we are losers who have become winners in Jesus Christ. But he went on to say, Christ should not have bothered dying on the cross. I don't want anybody to die for me. I've had a few drinks and a few girlfriends, and if that's going to put me in hell, then so be it. Paul would say, that's ignorance. And it's not reserved for Ted Turner. It's for everybody who's not a believer, and it's for every one of us before we were believers. And what I want you to notice in this phrase is, he doesn't just say that we were ignorant. He says, it's the ignorance that is in them. It's not just some surface thing. It's not just something that, you know, you can, oh, I wasn't thinking right at that moment. He says it's an ignorance that is in them. It's at the very core of their being. It's so tied with sin that it can't be removed. And then the second cause that he gives is the hardness of their heart. And that's in the last phrase in verse 18. The real cause of the ignorance is not in the mind. 
It's in the heart. Their hearts are hard. Remember when Jesus gave the parable of the sower? He said some of the seeds fell beside the road. And because people had walked on it so much, it packed down the earth, and the seed couldn't penetrate the earth. And so the birds came and they ate the seed before it could get started. And what does that represent? It represents the hard heart. The Word of God lands on the heart and it can't penetrate because that heart is so hard. You know what makes hearts hard? Hebrews 3.13 says, Hearts are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin hardens hearts. And so you see, the root problem here is not intellectual, it's moral. People reject the gospel not because they can't understand it, but because they won't understand it. It's not that it's, it's too complicated. The gospel is simple. The Iwanic cubbies understand the gospel. People don't miss the gospel because they can't understand it. They will not understand it. They refuse to understand it. And that is the hardness of the heart. And the reason they refuse to understand it is because they love their sin. Jesus said in John 3, 19, The light is come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. The problem wasn't that people couldn't see the light. The problem was they didn't want to see the light. They wanted to stay in the darkness so that they could enjoy their sin. And that love of sin leads to hardness of heart. You know, as you read the Gospels, there are very few things that Jesus got angry about. But one of them is expressed in Mark chapter 3, where Jesus walked into into the synagogue and he saw a man there with a withered hand. And the Pharisees were around setting a trap for him so that he would heal this man on the Sabbath day. And it says, Jesus looked around at them with anger grieved at their hardness of heart. What is it that made Jesus angry? It wasn't the people that were involved in sin who didn't know any better. It was the people who knew better, had seen Him, understood who He was, and had hardened their heart to the truth of God. That's the cause, as Paul lays it out. It's the ignorance that is in us, and it's the, it's the uh, what is the second one? The hardness of the heart that won't allow the truth to penetrate. Which brings us to the third thing, and that is the consequence in verse 19. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Notice that word. They have become callous. Now, spring is coming, and and inevitably I have to go out in the yard and I get the shovel or a rake and I start doing things in the yard. And the first day out there, what happens is I get blisters on my hand. That's my, my body's way of telling me not to do that. Stay behind the desk and not get out there. But if I ignore those blisters and the pain that they cause, and I keep doing that kind of work and I do it regularly enough, what happens? I get calluses on my hands, and then it doesn't hurt anymore. And Paul is telling us the same thing happens with your conscience. Every time you repeat a sin your conscience gets a little less sensitive. Every time you commit a sin, it bothers you a little less than it did last time. 
And if you keep ignoring those feelings of regret and remorse and shame, the conscience will eventually become calloused. Paul put it this way in 1 Timothy 4, 2. He said, they are seared in their conscience as with a branding iron. And what he's referring to there is that medically, oftentimes, they would cauterize a wound. They would take a hot iron and they would put it on that wound in order to create scar tissue to try to stop the bleeding and take away the pain. That was a painful way to deal with it. But the result was that the scar tissue felt no pain. And he's saying that's what happens eventually to a person's conscience. They get to the point where their conscience is just like scar tissue. Can't feel anything anymore. Jeremiah saw that in his day in Jeremiah 6.15, and he says, Were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. Wow. Blushing is a good thing. I enjoy seeing it in my seven-year-old daughter. Because when you're blushing, there's still hope. That's, that, that means your heart is still soft and your conscience is still sensitive. Jeremiah looked around in his day and said, they can't even blush. You know, the sad thing today is that people are hardening their hearts and causing their conscience to become calloused on purpose. Because you see, when you're honest about it, the only way to enjoy sin is to get a callous conscience and a hard heart. Because there's no way to enjoy sin if your conscience is protesting the whole time. So I have to get beyond that to really enjoy it, and that's what people oftentimes do today. I found another quote from Ted Turner. Turns out he was raised in a Christian home, which may explain some of his animosity. In fact, he described it this way. He said, religion was pounded into us so much that I was saved seven or eight times. But this is the quote I want you to notice. He said, The more I strayed from my Christian upbringing, the better I felt. Now, why did he feel better? Because his conscience got a little more calloused and a little more calloused, and his heart got a little harder and a little harder, so he couldn't feel it anymore. Perfect example of what Paul is saying here. Paul says, Having become calloused, dulled to sin, they have given themselves over to sensuality. Having lost all sensitivity, they lose all self-control. And Paul says they give themselves over. They abandon themselves. They let themselves go. No restraints. Not even concerned about what society thinks or what morality says or what decency would demand. And what do they give themselves over to? Sensuality. Your Bible may say lasciviousness. This is the strongest Greek word for sin. It means total lewdness. Sin taken to the excess. Peter described it in 2 Peter 2.13 this way when he said, They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Those sins that are normally reserved for the darkness, they have brought them right out into the light and they flaunt them in front of other people. Why? Because their hearts are hard and their consciences are calloused. That's why we have gay parades with people flaunting their perversity right down the streets of our cities. That's why we have movies like we do today that just flaunt this kind of thing on the screens. That's why we have Mardi Gras, which is a strange thing because people are actually 
partying to get ready for Lent, which is making a sacrifice for the Lord. It's almost saying the best way to get ready to be holy is to be as sinful as I possibly can. And yet if you've ever been to Mardi Gras, which I'm ashamed to say I have, it's just a matter of people flaunting their lewdness in public with no concern because they're calloused in their conscience. And what do they do? Paul says at the end of verse 19, they practice every kind of impurity with greediness. And that word practice means business. They make it their business to do immorality. They work at it. And what motivates them? Look at the last word, greediness. Interesting word. God calls us to walk in love, which is the expression of selflessness. We used to walk in greediness, which is the total expression of selfishness. And I like that word because it reminds us that in all their impurity and all their sensuality, they're never satisfied. Not only is this walk aimless, but it's unfulfilling. It's Mick Jagger singing, I can't get no satisfaction. That's the theme song of everyone who walks this path. Let me show you a passage before we close this morning. Look at Romans chapter 1 for just a moment. I want to show you how these two passages compare. In both cases, Paul is talking about the lost world. Romans chapter 1 and verse 21. He says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. Earlier in verse 18, he said, They suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. That's the hardness of heart. Then the next phrase in verse 21 says, but they became futile in their speculations. What did Paul say in Ephesians 4? The futility of their minds. Next phrase, their foolish heart was darkened. Ephesians 4 says they're darkened in their understanding. Verse 22 here says, professing to be wise, they became fools. What did Paul say in Ephesians 4? Ignorance. And then if you notice down in verse 24 of Romans 1, therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. And in Ephesians chapter 4 it reads, they have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. God gave them over in Romans 1. They gave themselves over in Ephesians chapter 4. Which one comes first? Sounds to me like they do it in concert. People say, I'm going to give myself over to sin, and God says, if that's what you want, I'm going to give you over as well. And if you read Romans chapter 1, you'll see that part of the result of that is homosexuality. Read the details at the end of Romans chapter 1. He's describing men going after men with their desires and women going after women with their desires. God has given them over to perversity because they have first given themselves over to sensuality. We'll come back to Ephesians chapter 4 and we'll close. I regret that we only got half the message today. We only got the negative side. Next week, we're going to get the positive side. You say, well, why would Paul spend all this time giving us a portrait of unbelievers? Well, I think he had a reason. It's interesting to me that Paul could spend all these verses talking about unbelievers, and yet as we read this, there's nothing appealing in anything he says. He's talking about sin and depravity in quite a bit of detail, But there's nothing there that would attract us to that. In fact, it's interesting. It's actually disgusting. 
He says it's futility, darkness, ignorance, hardness, callousness, sensuality, impurity, greediness. You see, he wants us to understand that because later in this chapter he's going to show us that part of the Christian walk is to put off those old things and to put on the new. And he wants us to be disgusted about what our walk used to be like so that we will desire to put those things off completely so that we might walk in the path that God has set before us. And as I read this, this is certainly not something I desire to be walking in. I want to walk the path that the Lord has put before me, and I trust that's your feeling as well.